Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. On this episode, I speak with journalist and author Katie Hafner and bioethicist Amy Scharf about the Lost Women of Science Initiative, a new educational nonprofit organization created to research and promote the stories of the forgotten women of science. The initiative's mission is to raise awareness of the pivotal role women have played in scientific discoveries and innovations, and to promote interest in STEM education and careers, especially among girls and young women. The Lost Women of Science podcast launches on November 4th in partnership with public media organization PRX and the award-winning Scientific American magazine. Katie Hefner is the host, and Amy Scharf is one of the co-executive producers. The podcast series will present deeply reported narratives of female scientists, previously unrecognized by the general public for their contributions. The first season will include four in-depth episodes centered on Dr. Dorothy Anderson, a brilliant pathologist and pediatrician who discovered and named cystic fibrosis in the 1930s. Making Media Now is supported by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum, from providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs. Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, subscribe, leave a review, and share it with friends. And now on to my conversation with Katie Hefner and Amy Scharf. Hello and welcome to Making Media Now. Amy Scharf and Katie Hafner. Katie and Amy um, are the uh, powers that be behind a new podcast and a new initiative called called Lost Women of Science. And uh, I would love it if one of you could explain to us what the description of Lost Women of Science is. Uh, Amy, do you want to <laughs> sure, take a step great. at that? <laughs> Amy has been drafted. Amy has been drafted. So... The thesis or really our mission of Lost Women in Science is is twofold. First, for every Marie Curie, Rosalind Franklin that the public at large really knows about and is familiar with, there are probably dozens to hundreds for each one of them um, of women who made remarkable achievements and breakthroughs and developments in the field of science writ large, all of STEM from, from medicine to engineering that made these remarkable achievements, but yet did not receive the recognition that they deserve. And it is our, our mission to illuminate these women and hopefully give them some of this recognition that they deserve and to educate the listeners, not only about these women, but about the science behind their discoveries and achievements, both in the context in which they lived and also how the science and their achievements are so relevant to um, how we live our lives today. The second very important mission of Lost Women of Science is to then inspire girls and young women and even older women to enter the STEM pipeline through education and professional um, professional work to inspire them to enter these fields by by presenting them with relatable and hopefully a and definitely a diverse group of role models 
It's really our, it's really our mantra um, is the, the, what Amy said first for every Marie Curie out there who people know about, there are hundreds, really hundreds of women who did remarkable things who've been lost to history. And just to remind our listeners to give a little bit further explanation on each of your backgrounds, Amy is a bioethicist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. And uh, Katie is a author and a journalist, primarily with the New York Times, writing on issues regarding healthcare and technology. How did this initiative grow between the two of you? And, you know, where'd the idea come from? And uh, how did you decide to marshal your collective forces? So should I take that, Amy? Um, Go ahead. So uh, it's actually a great story. Um, so, yeah, I'm a journalist. I've been um, writing for The New York Times forever. I'm now not really writing for them much, except I do do a lot of obituaries for them still. Um, <clears throat> and advanced obituaries. And, uh, and I've known Amy for a long time. And for as long as I've known her, she's been telling me about this woman who, uh, wasn't, who's been kind of lost to history. Her name is Dorothy Anderson. And she was a pathologist, a pediatric pathologist at Columbia in the 1930s. So a hundred years ago, pretty much. She was the first to isolate cystic fibrosis as a disease that was being misdiagnosed routinely as celiac disease, because, you know, we think we who are kind of out of the CF loop tend to think it's a lung disease, but it's it really involved. It has a big GI involvement. And, um, Amy, for a long time, said because I'm a writer and she said, gee, maybe we should write a book. And I thought, hmm, I'm not really sure there's enough material for a book. And then I was doing a podcast, uh, which I still do, called Our Mothers Ourselves, mm -hmm. which is I do interviews with people about their extraordinary mothers. No bad mothers. People with bad mothers need not <laughs> darken my doorway. <laughs> and um Anyway, and so I had gotten to know that medium. So I'm a print journalist and I was doing dabbling in um, in the podcast world an interview podcast, which, as you know, is completely different from a complete from a produced, polished, yes. reported, researched podcast. So I naively said to Amy, well, maybe not a book. And this was about a year ago. Mm -hmm. I said, maybe not a book, but how about a podcast? Like that'll be easy and quick and fun. And, and, um, and she's like, okay. And, and it just, and then I said, wait a minute, how about a whole series? Uh, let's call it, let's do not just Dorothy Anderson, but let's just do a whole series and call it lost women of science. And Amy, you know, she's a great sport. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so we started this initiative and uh, we recruited a senior producer. We found a composer. We found a sound engineer, um, very much seat of the pants. But we had no clue how much work goes into a fully reported, narrated. I mean, if you think about something called if you think about something like The Daily, which has like you know, scads and scads of researchers and producers and reporters all for that one. We are 
it. Right. <laughs> so sure. Yeah. Uh, so then we we formed ourselves as an initiative, and we are we just got our five hundred one c three status as a nonprofit. And we've got this incredible database of women. It's really kind of the, I call it the coin of our realm of about 150 women who've been overlooked uh, by history, which is a total shame, shame on us, right? And your podcast will launch on November the 4th. And if I understand correctly, the first four episodes uh, will be telling the story of Dr. Dorothy Anderson. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, we figure if if these women lived, you know, 50, 60, 70 years, we could spare four hours. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. Right. <laughs> the stylistic approach of the podcast will be more more along the lines of almost an audio documentary as opposed yeah. to the type of conversation you and I are having right now. Yes, it's very, very heavily. Um, it's it's very tape heavy. It's very interview heavy uh, reporting. Um, many, many voices go into season one. Um, and I'm part of the production team. It's intense uh, because we've had to go into uh, find archives and get all kinds of there. They're, you know, with these women, they're just little strings and threads of their stories um, and that you have to go out and find. And when we started on Dorothy Anderson, we didn't even know we'd find as much as we did. Well, Amy, I, I, I want to come back to you and talk a little bit about writing advanced obituaries because that's, oh, that's me. Katie, rather. But Amy, I'm curious, I, what what was it about this idea uh, that took hold with you? Two things that really there were actually many things that took hold that really inspired me. It was first the podcast medium it was such a great way to tell these stories. I mean, it really is. Um, you talk to people of all ages and everybody is listening to podcasts. And I feel like the hunger for them is just terrific. And the audience is terrific and it just lends itself so well. And it also is just accessible. It's a free service to you know, literally anybody, you know, anybody with a cell phone, with a smartphone can access it. So it's, sure. it's, it's a wonderful way to reach so many people. Um, it's a great way to tell uh, the stories of these women in a very digestible way. So each season we are focusing on one scientist and for four, for four episodes and each episode will be 30 to 35 minutes long. Okay. So it's a, it's a really digestible way to, to, to tell the stories and tell very different stories. And also what, I love about it is the ability to put these um, scientists and their science and their lives in historical context Mm -hmm. and to give the listeners, like I said, not only a better understanding of who these women are and what their scientific breakthroughs and achievements were, but to really understand what it was like to work and persevere as a scientist during that time. And also to, to learn like what inspired these women, mm-hmm. what, what, what was the spark? What was the the passion that um, impelled them to continue their work, even when they were facing really tremendous odds? How does your background and your, your work as a bioethicist inform the way that uh, you're both uh, you're interested in these stories, but also in the way that uh, you feel these stories should be told? You know, as a bioethicist, I'm always, always thinking about what's missing in a story. When, when, when I come up or I'm working on a particularly difficult or any um, ethical 
problem or issue that I, 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 I face either in uh, at Memorial Sloan Kettering or in my other work as and readings as, as an ethicist. There's so many facets to a story. When you when you when you're confronted with a, a an issue, a, a challenge, an ethical challenge, you have to step back and look at it and really walk around it and examine it from so many different perspectives because it's it's never just a single perspective. Mm-hmm. And there's many ways to analyze and interpret and come to a, let's see, a conclusion, but to a better understanding and perhaps a way that all parties can can agree or, or move forward on the challenge. And I feel it's the same with you know, these lost women. They, their achievement, when you look at their achievements and people think about them in one way, for example, cystic fibrosis. And when you, when you, circle the, the the issue meaning cystic fibrosis and you see so many different components of it not just Dorothy Anderson but also you think more about the patients and the families and and the institutions that all of this that went into into how the scientist came to understand and, and approach the problem. And it's really approaching approaching the problem and approaching the scientists and approaching the science from many different angles. Katie, what did you discover someone say like Dorothy Anderson? What type of challenges would she have faced uh, both, you know, as a researcher and, you know, as a scientist, not just with the uh, the undertaking of her work, but also in uh, in the way her work was are received and perceived? Wow, that's such a great question. Just, I want to really briefly say that as Amy was talking, I think both of us, just to close the loop on the, you know, coming to starting this project, uh, I think both of us have seen that all kinds of different facets of our lives are coming together in this one project. I have to say, you know, I've been a reporter for many, many years and, uh, this, I feel like my life has been leading up to this as a journalist to tell these stories. It's it's really remarkably gratifying. And I think Amy was telling me that she kind of feels the same way. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. So um, Dorothy Anderson, let's talk about the challenges that she faced as a woman in the early uh 20th century, which were formidable. Uh, women, very few women went to medical school. Uh, women became nurses, if anything. Um, she was at Johns Hopkins. I'd like to do a shout out to Johns Hopkins here because they um, they were started by women. The Johns, Johns Hopkins Medical School was started by women with the uh, but a, a woman who was involved with founding it on the and gave the money when it was endowed uh, on the condition that women be admitted mm-hmm. um, into the first graduating class. That's my understanding. We might have to fact check that, but I think it's mm-hmm. it's right. And um, she was one of five women who graduated from her class in 1926, her um, medical school class. She wanted to become a surgeon, but surgery was pretty much completely closed off to women. So she, lucky for us and lucky for the cystic fibrosis world, became a pathologist. 
And she, what I love about her, uh, and also she was orphaned as a teenager. She never married and she didn't have kids and um, didn't have siblings. And so she, there was nobody there to preserve her leg, her legacy. So Lost Woman of Science gets at kind of these profound questions of who's going to preserve your story, your legacy. So when she was a pathologist, as I mentioned earlier, Cystic fibrosis was routinely misdiagnosed as celiac disease. These kids were coming in, they were dying as babies, completely malnourished, starving to death, and then would develop these lung infections. So she was doing autopsies, which back then, you know, autopsies are far less routine than they used to be. It was one way to diagnose. It was like one of the principal ways to diagnose. And she had this three-year-old, she was had gone to Columbia, started at Columbia in 1929. I think she was born in 1901. So she would have been 28 years old. And she had this three-year-old cadaver of a three-year-old girl who had been diagnosed with celiac. And she noticed, and this is what is amazing about her, is that she had this open mind. Um, we quote someone saying, luck favors a prepared mind. Mm-hmm. I, I would say genius favors a, an open mind. So she had this mind that thought out of the box. She didn't just go with the conventional wisdom that this girl died of celiac disease from the from malnutrition she started to notice that the lungs had the same kind of sticky mucusy quality that the that the pan- pancreatic duct had so she doggedly gumshooed her way through dozens of autopsy reports and this was long before the days obviously of google scholar she had to write letters to all these institutions asking for their path slides their pathology slides and autopsy reports looking for um similar uh situations and she came out with in 19 this was 1935 was when she um did that first autopsy and then in 1938 she published a 50 page, I mean, a 50 page single author paper. These days, scientific papers are like not 50 pages. They're a lot shorter. And there can be there can there can be dozens of authors on a paper. So, you know, just her sheer perseverance was remarkable. I'm curious how each of you have thought about taking a, a subject matter like lost women of science and and telling these stories that deserve to be told, but also telling them in a way that that feels relevant and inspirational to the audiences that you want to that you want to reach. We're an educational initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, so our primary our really our principal goal is is education. So I don't know if you, Michael, I don't know if you had this as a kid, but um, did, did they have like biographies for young readers? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I remember being completely inspired by, of all people, Luther Burbank when I <laughs> one of those young person, not a man, but I mean, not a woman, but inspired nonetheless. And so our hope is that and we're making the science very understandable. It's not geared towards kids, but it's understandable by very wide 
uh, age range. Sure. And, accessible. Um, yep. Yeah, very, very accessible. Our hope is that kids and not just girls, but mm-hmm. uh, boys too, will hear this and think, wow. And what we're doing with the history by telling, by as Amy said, putting it into historical context, it's really important that these kids understand just how hard. I mean, it is like when I was your age, I walked to school two miles in the snow on steroids. I mean, this was, you know, this was really, really, really hard what these right. what these people did. Exactly. But then also just to add to that is we are really emphasizing also how relevant this scientist's work is to today. For example, in our telling of Dorothy Anderson, we are also um, dedicating time to talk about CRISPR and gene editing because um, cystic fibrosis is a disease that to which CRISPR lends itself really well. So bringing it to today and, and science today, we're also talking with some CF patients. And in fact, um, one who um, is the beneficiary of a very new and really game-changing new drug that means that for certain CF patients with certain gene um, attributes, like respond incredibly well and has given them like this incredible, you know, improvement and and longevity that didn't exist before. So it's not just something that's, oh, this, this was something that happened a hundred years ago. And isn't that nice? It's no, it's, it happened a hundred years ago and here, because it happened, here's how people's lives have been changed so much for the better because of it. I'm also curious how what each of you feel about launching your uh, your program, your initiative in an environment where (laughs) sometimes it feels like science and the scientific method is just being received as, well, that's your opinion. Mm. And, 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 you know, we, we, we live in a, uh, in a sea and ocean of opinions. And yet, not that long ago, scientific insight and scientific research and scientific analysis was viewed differently as, you know, as expert opinion, as informed opinion. And do you, do you feel the, um, uh, the pull of that influence at all? Are you saying that there are people who are going to listen to Lost Women of Science and say, oh, well, that's their opinion? Is that what you're saying? Well, I, I think probably maybe at the most extreme, but I, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, have we reached a point as, you know, uh, in society where the expertise mm-hmm. of uh, people in the medical profession and the scientific profession, you know, while it's never presented as the rock solid certainty because it has to lend itself again to the scientific method, but somewhere between that. And as I said, while it's just one opinion among many, mm-hmm. um, that I think creates a bind that is, is, is pretty new uh, and, and unique. Yeah. That's a tough one. I mean, it's a I, tough one. I think we're finding that obviously to tragic effect um, with COVID and um, people who don't get vaccinated. Science has been is now that just the very fact of things are now polarized and called into question. And um, the, as you say, the, the so-called experts are now sort of dismissed, even ridiculed. You know, I would, as a journalist, um, I consider it my job. Mm-hmm. just to report what happened right. and 
and for instance, describing the body um, and the pathophysiology of cystic fibrosis, that's something that I want to get absolutely right and will feel really good about the podcast as a as a technology and science journalist. I take getting things right really seriously. And it's, you know, it's unfortunate if if uh, I, I mean, I can't imagine that someone whose child has cystic fibrosis, it is unbearable, I think, to hear your child suffer the way kids with cystic fibrosis cough mm-hmm. in a way that's just nightmarish um, and not think that a drug like the one we're talking about, um, Trikafta, would give them the longevity of a, you know, of a healthy person. I can't get inside their heads. Mm-hmm, and, sure. um, but I hope that in hearing the stories of these people as humans, you know, I have always written at the intersection of humanity and technology, society and science. And, um, so it's my hope that in telling this, these very human stories, right. um, there will be a way in. It's interesting that you say that because at this juncture also, that intersection is very fraught in the sense that too often or, or perhaps at least sometimes, the technology is actually working against the uh, accurate perception of the science, like the the, the scientific method involves trial and error and and to some degree what technology has the false promise of technology is a certain degree of certainty honey i, th- I thought you were going to go somewhere else with that which was the internet <laughs> well yeah that too <laughs> yes i thought that's where we were heading because yes. you know i i have to tell you um so my late husband and i uh wrote a history of the internet together. And I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty hardcore internet historian. And, um, and, uh, you know, you talk to these guys now, the guys I wrote about who started this thing and they just, it's, uh, you used out of the box. Well, you used to ask them, um, did you have any idea that you had a rocket on your hands and it was all this wonderful sort of happiness with which they, and delight with which they talked about their invention. And now you just can see them cringe. I mean, it's miraculous that we are here on zoom high def, you know, having this conversation. It's, um, it's amazing. Um, and it's got the flip side, as everything does have, but it could also be the, be the downfall of civilization. Um, not to get too any- alarmist. I would say that's a little morbid, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. And 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 just to, to to build on what Katie said, it's true. And I think we're hopefully going to to demonstrate in in talking about the the trajectory of of our scientists and the positives and, and, and the setbacks that they faced and sure. the, the setbacks and the, 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 the ills that we're talking about now in terms of scientific discovery and questioning science. I mean, those are not new. I mean, you know, people just think the earth was flat and, and, and Galileo was, um, what's the word I'm searching for? Uh, a heretic. 
he was a heretic. He was, he was labeled a heretic. So you know, maybe we're just seeing this in different forms, but, um, but again, the perseverance and like the truth shall prevail, hopefully is, is something that will continue, even if it's, it's two step forward, two steps forward and, and one step back. Amy, you just reminded me. Thank you for mentioning Galileo because um, there's a play called Galileo by Brecht, Bertolt Brecht. And at the end of the play, he has an essay called um, Seven Difficulties in Telling the Truth. And um, I don't have the book here with me. I'm, I'm not in San Francisco right now, but I keep it on my shelf. And sometimes I look at that essay of Brecht's The Seven Difficulties of Telling the Truth. And that was about, he wrote that, he, I think he must have written it in the 40s or, um, or no, earlier, in the early part of the 20th centuries when he lived, I think. Um, so we'll always, we'll always face this. One of the great things about uh, STEM programs uh, is that they, you know, they, they celebrate uh, intellectual rigor and they celebrate, you know, a certain type of intelligence. And I'm, I'm wondering, as you as you both were putting this program together, uh, if you looked to um, any other instances where uh, the role of women in the, the STEM disciplines and the way they were portrayed in the popular culture looked to you as, oh, yeah, see, they did a good job doing it. And as evidence that it can be done and it can be it can be both entertaining and educational and engaging and inspirational. You mean like hidden figures? It, yeah, sure. That, yeah. that right. certainly yeah. right. Which, of mind. All of our stories are all of the above. Yeah. Exactly. There's hidden figures. There's the documentary on on Hedy Lamar. Um, that was uh, produced a few years ago. I think it was a PBS documentary. Oh, and there's um, the the movie about Rosalind Franklin, uh, who you know was robbed of a Nobel Prize and then died before. She, I guess they couldn't have given it posthumously. So that she had worked with Watson and Crick, and it was her work in X-ray crystallography that was um, key to. Um, discovering the structure of DNA. And so there's a great movie there. Um, Lisa Meitner, the physicist, the atomic physicist, who also did not get a Nobel Prize and Otto Hahn did. Um, she's, to my great delight, there is, it is, she's like, there are now children's books about her. And there's a movie, I think. And the Sloan Foundation has, they uh, they supported the, the Hidden Figures Film, I think there's they have supported or might be supporting the Aliza Meitner project. Right, um, they they supported the um the book for hidden figures, which hidden figures was. Oh, okay. That's or, did that answer your question, or did we just ramble? No, <laughs> you did. I was I was interested in what other maybe you know influences that 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 you might mm -hmm. have seen, or as I said, instances where uh you know women in science were portrayed. Uh, in a manner that that you thought was laudable. Do you already have in mind who your season two story is going to focus on? We do, but I don't know. Have we let the cat out of the bag? We, we have sure. not. But but just to be clear, though, so you know, we're we're focusing season one on a on a physician, on a medical doctor, and our um, 
our goal is to really focus and to and to and to illuminate uh, women from the entire STEM field. So um, without you know, letting the cat out of the bag, we are our next few ep- our next few seasons are going to feature a computer scientist, a mechanical engineer a botanist and probably a physicist. Well, before we wrap up, Katie, I got to go back to those advanced obituaries for a minute. So I'm not unfamiliar with the concept because it always does seem like, you know, when some notable person dies within 20 minutes, there's the 750 word obit that's showing up someplace. So you're writing <laughs> these in advance, correct? Yeah. The times keep, there's a, I want to make a plug for this great film called Obit. Um, done, I've heard of that. Um, not yeah, fantastic. By this yeah. amazing filmmaker, Vanessa Gould, who, um, uh, about the times, the New York Times is obit, uh, advance, uh, obits and advance obits. And so the Times keeps this kind of vault of advance obits that nobody can see. And so we who um, have been following a beat for a long time. So I'm I was for a long time on technology for the Times, specifically the Internet guys and my Internet guys are dying out. So I've been kind of going down the list um, and it's been really sad because many of them have died just in the last three to five years. And then, so you write it and then you, the, the subject can't see it. Like one person asked me, can I read it before it comes out? Because obviously they can't read it when it comes out. <laughs> they'll be dead. So, um, That's and I have to say, freak. yeah, I want to improve my open. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, George Duke Majin, the former governor, this is a great story. The former governor of, um, California, a great guy, by the way, um, one of those really wonderful, both sides of the aisle Republicans. He, uh, I called him. This was about 10 years ago. And I, you know, I introduced myself. I said, I want to, you know, I'm working on your advanced obituary. So I, I call my subjects. Um, Not every reporter does, but I love having an interview with them um, and letting them know they're going to be honored in a big way. Mm -hmm. And, um, and he said, well, you know, 10 years ago, the LA time, an LA times reporter called me and wanted to talk to me about my, my obituary. And I said, I'm not ready yet. And then the reporter died (laughs) and, uh, and he said, so I guess, yeah, I'm ready. And I'm thinking, yeah, I don't really feel like dying right away. So, um, (laughs) so that went really well. And he asked if he could see it and I, said no and i i felt terrible because we spent a lot of time you know talking and uh uh, but then his he died of course when when i and we had to crash the fact checking and updating of it and his i remember his uh chief of staff uh wrote to me afterwards and he sounded surprised that the new york times would have such an even-handed story about a republican and i thought of course of course yeah, i'll have yeah, to dig exactly. that up i said something about how he reached on both sides of the aisle and, mm-hmm. yeah politics ends at the grave one would hope yeah, I think yeah. the advance obits on the uh, the more recent round of of yeah. tech mavens might be more challenging because aren't those guys determined to crack the code on immortality? Yeah, I know. Not just that, but they're all still thirty, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so true, so true. 
Amy, Sharf, and Katie Hafner, thank you both for your time. And the podcast is Lost Women of Science. It will be launching on November the 4th. And if our listeners want to find out more about the entire initiative, where should they be going? So our website is lostwomenofscience.org. Excellent. All right. Well, I thank you both for your time. I'm really looking forward to listening to this story about Dorothy Anderson. And um, I wish you much luck with the project and future seasons. Oh, it was thank a you, pleasure, Michael. Michael. Thanks.